From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. For the Falcon and the Winter Soldier star Anthony Mackie, his road to becoming Captain America means something even larger than just the character. And now the pinnacle of all pinnacles, you know, having one of my, if not one of my bucket list, the bucket list moment happen. It's not so much about becoming Captain America, but it's about having my dreams realized. You know, it's, um, it was, it's, it's, it's very humbling when, you know, you get the opportunity that you've always dreamed of. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast, we talk to Anthony Mackie about the Marvel Universe, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and his journey to get there. Later on, we stay in the Marvel Universe and chat with WandaVision head writer Jack Schaefer and star Paul Bettany about pulling off an homage to classic TV sitcoms in one of the most ambitious, unusual TV shows to come around in years. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we discuss the surprisingly sparse Emmy drama race. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey all, welcome back to another edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. I am your friendly host, Michael Schneider. Here, as always, we've got Jazz Tanke, we've got Danielle Terciano, and ding dong, who's in the neighborhood? <laughs> I'm going to make this even more embarrassing every single week. It's the one and only Kate Arthur joining us live from up north. Uh, Kate, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. What an honor. (laughs) Is it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So let's kick things off first off. Uh, So Jazz, if you have, uh, if anyone in the audience has received this week's issue of Variety Magazine, beautiful cover story of her, the artist, by the one and only Jazz Tanke, um, along with Jem Oswald, who uh, uh, you collaborated with on this. But uh, how cool is that? So um, we've been loving her uh, in our household. And, uh, even she, she even showed up on, uh, 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 yes day, the, the random, like right. lovely Netflix movie that my family enjoyed. Loved yes day and loved her <laughs> in yes day. And I watched that Oscars weekend. So when she won, I felt connected to her. This is Kate, by the way, that's not jazz. <laughs> I interrupted. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Jazz's, uh, you know, one? <laughs> triumphant run around the block to with my own her story that is irrelevant, but no, it is every bit relevant. Yeah, I. Oh my gosh, what a story! I mean, I remember pitching this pack in January, right at the beginning. Just, I mean, she is everywhere, and it was like we need to do a story on her. We need to do a cover story, and this is before the Oscar nomination went out. She got the Oscar nomination. It was like, okay, she had done the Super Bowl. She'd won the Grammy, and the next day she got the Oscar nomination. So I feel like I've been on this journey with her. The album is out, and it was a ride. It was great. I learned so much from her. I think we, you know, we vibed over the both being Filipino, and she's a better cook than I am. I can't even cook a Filipino dish mm-hmm. to save my life. <laughs> um, but just she's 23 years old and she's like halfway to EGOT. She was in yesterday that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're watching this all of a sudden it's like, wait, she's there. And she has been everywhere since. So, you know, Jam and I, you know, we did this in, all right. Actually I did part of that interview in our studio and it was our first, my first time back in the office 
it was so surreal being at the PMC offices with the video team and sitting down. It was like, if this is going to be your first interview, why not? And it was great. Um, yeah, we sat down. We, you know, she's also the keynote for our Changemakers com- a Summit, which drops also on Thursday. And yeah, it was fascinating just to hear like everything she's got planned. And it's definitely exciting. So much fun. Yeah, to be 23 and to already have accomplished all that, it's still just the beginning of, of her career. Uh, it, must just be amazing. She's got some interesting backstory too. I mean, she's been performing all her life right. and, and, you know, just, you know, develop the stage persona as well. And, and yeah, just fantastic. So that, that's great. Like, it's like, what did we do at 23? Where were you at 23? Like <laughs> still deciding what to do with your life. I was writing about television jazz, so I don't Shocking. know what happened, but <laughs> exact same thing I did when I was 23. I don't know if that's just arrested development or what, but uh, <laughs> so let's talk to our guest of the week, Kate. Um, you've been you've been busy with all sorts of things, including, of course, the the Real Housewives beat. Uh, you know. <laughs> you're, you're Never stops. everything going on there. Okay. How did you get into the whole Bravo world? Was it just like a fascination with the train wreck of it all? Or what was sort of your entry point to, to, to that world? You say train wreck. I say dream. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. It's a, it's definitely wow. a right. It's definitely a right. What you know, situation. I mean, I, I love the housewives as a franchise. I feel like I've, learned more about America from the housewives than I have from any documentary that's come out in the past 20 years. I mean, I just, it's like, it's just an incredible, um, as a viewer, it, they, those shows never stop giving. And, uh, as a beat, it never stops taking, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, I, I just have gotten into reporting on the shows and, um, our readers seem to like the stories. So, um, you know, it's, it's fun, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's a lot. (laughs) There is a lot. I mean, how many, how many franchises of, of just housewives alone? And there are then, eight, eight yeah. cities. Um, yeah. And, uh, when Miami comes back on, um, Peacock, there will be nine. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And then are you also like into below deck into what, what other franchises are you? Sort of- um, I, I watch below deck. I watch top chef. I love Top Chef. It's a little highbrow for me, considering, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I I like a Bravo show. There are some shows that I just have missed for some reason. I know people love Summer House, but I I just it, it's too late. I think you know. I just um, I have two kids, and and I have to have to make some tough choices, uh, in terms of viewing. So, um, it, I think it's, it's too late for me in summer house, but, um, but yeah. Well, we got a summer of love Island and and big brother, of course, coming back. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's, there's so many to, to choose from. Actually, (laughs) I'd be curious, uh, Danielle, do you have a guilty, uh, unscripted, uh, pleasure that, uh, you've, you've always sort of 
maybe secretly watch but haven't even told us about? Oh, I was going to say secretly, no. Everybody knows because I end up writing about it. But it's funny because I used to be a very big Housewives loyalist. Um, and I've fallen off in more recent seasons. I've given up with some of the cities completely and some of the other ones I'm just not caught up on because other things kept getting in the way or I was annoyed at a particular person or a particular storyline. I was like, this is bad representation. I don't want to reward this with my ratings. I'm not a Nielsen family. They don't care if I'm watching. So no, I mean, when it comes to reality TV, like I tend to be more into the competition shows, the stuff that I can never do, the Top Chefs, the Lego Masters, the Challenge on MTV. I could never, every time I interview anybody from the Challenge, my only question is like, why? Why do you still do it? And it always comes out sounding like I'm judging them. And I'm not intending to judge them negatively. I'm just like fascinated because it's such a mental and physical toll, takes such a mental and physical toll on their bodies. And they're, you know, most of them are adults now. So just the fact that like, you might be leaving your family to come do this insane show, like what drives you to do that? It's just a different mentality than I would ever have. So it's uh, utterly utterly interesting to me yeah well i'm with you on the the lego masters uh definitely yeah also not good at lego but i love lego (laughs) i can follow the instructions same same (laughs) i I don't know how they do it but yeah (laughs) every time i see lego masters on tv i'm like a danielle show that's that's what (laughs) i associate you with lego masters yeah well, because during the pandemic, like I was not the one person buying the puzzles or the coloring books. I bought a bunch of Lego sets. And now I'm like, what do I do with them? They're built. I don't have any children. I'm not going to display them. There's nowhere in my house to display them with the exception of the friend sets, which are displayed. Like they're just sitting in a closet now. And I feel kind of bad about it. There's and some nice f- ones that are now hard to find. And of course, the the Disney Castle, which if anyone has seen yes. you moderate any panel over the past year, they've, they've it's usually in the background. To, to the castle. <laughs> Jazz, yeah, do you have a, a a guilty uh, unscripted pleasure? Oh my gosh! Well, I did start off with keeping up with the Kardashians. I think I stopped watching. I think after Mason turned three. Yes, I was obsessed with Mason and <laughs> Mason Bissick, um and his wardrobe and his hair. Um, occasionally, I do watch the the Real Housewives, and I'm not picking on the city. It's just that's the thing about it that like you can just dip in and out, and I don't really i haven't stayed long enough for the real drama though um but thanks to twitter i can see what's going on but i do indulge in million dollar listing i don't care what city but like on a saturday morning when i'm just puttering around and that i will put that on and obviously there's drag race which Mm-hmm. I write about. Thanks to Danielle. Yeah. Danielle puts up with. But I also life. don't feel like that's a guilty pleasure. That's an Emmy winner. But like that I is feel a, yeah. weird. Well, yeah, I don't think. That is fine. Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah, and Top Chef definitely not a guilty pleasure. That's either. true too. I mean, yeah. that, that's true. Too. I have no guilt over any of these. By the way, like, <laughs> exactly. I don't. I don't believe <laughs> no. in these things. And, and, you, and you shouldn't. This is true. It, you shouldn't. It's, yeah, it's it's it's, it, it's educational television, is what it is. So it is. You're seeing how the how a different pocket of the world lives and as you said i mean learning about america through housewives like the i the way that people respond to the housewives today compared to how they responded when the franchises first launched fascinates me because i feel like that says so much about how we've moved through the culture and what we think is aspirational and what we think is okay and what we think we need to be aware about with privilege so like that like there's a there's a really 
a socioeconomic study you can do with that if you wanted to. Absolutely. And, and it's really, it's like, it's like sports, you know, like the Mm -hmm. way I talk about it with my friends is like how, when I was very into sports, like as a, in my twenties, like the way I would talk about teams, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and, and who I liked and the players and, um, you know, it's, it's like a fascination and it's always changing and, and they also can't be controlled. When I was publishing a story last night about, cast changes on the Real Housewives of Orange County that was supposed to run today, but because the fired women no longer care and cannot be controlled, (laughs) Bravo was like, it's got to go tonight. Like they're almost, they're going to blow, you know? So, uh, so it had to be moved up, you know, because they're just, you can't, they're geysers. They're like a force of nature. Mm -hmm. So it's all fascinating. And, and Kate, hopefully you'll make it to BravoCon this year uh, now that it's mm. making a return. But. And Kate, with the, the new Emmy category, the edu- turning reality into educational. Yeah. Educational yeah. series. Let's do that. Let's lobby for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a bonus Peabody. Well, <laughs> let's switch gears now real quick and, and talk about uh, uh, another category. Uh, speaking of drama, this is scripted drama as opposed to that real life drama we were just talking about. Um, it's a category that, you know, I think from the beginning, we've all sort of assumed it's the crowns to lose and it still sort of is the crowns to lose. But I mean, Danielle, what, what, what do you think at this point? Has there been much movement in, in your mind in, in terms of this drama race or has it been pretty static? It's interesting. I mean, I do still think it's the crowns to lose, but I think that there there have been some interesting pushes that are they're making some of the other shows a little bit more visible that it might not be as cut and dry as it appeared. I mean, you know, even something like Bridgerton, which when it first launched, we were all like, we think actors will get nominated. We don't know about the show, but they're doing such a push for the show that I think it has a much better chance um, of seeing that nomination, especially again, we've talked about this, but again, with having, you know, eight open slots um, because only a few returning shows are eligible again. And like the crown will likely get nominated, but it's not going to take all the slots. Um, And then, you know, there's, there's some newer shows that I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a little unclear on. Like I thought in treatment was going to be kind of a no brainer for a nomination. Um, I don't know if it is. I haven't heard a whole lot of people talking about it. Maybe I'm not looking in the right places or talking to the right people. And I certainly think it's worthy, but um, it's a little, I'm a little unclear on like where shows like that stand yeah. at the moment. Well, that one might've just been too late. Like maybe. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's still airing. That's the other thing is that like, if you, you might've caught the first few episodes, you might not have realized this is a 24 episode season and every episode, you know, there's blocks of four because each one is dedicated to a specific character. So there's six episodes per character. So you maybe only watched two i don't even know how many people would have watched of each person and that's not necessarily enough to give you a full picture of what they're doing and what they're going through over the course of the uh, of the course of the season well jazz do you think mandalorian might be the the spoiler do you think there's there's still a chance that that uh may actually go the distance and and uh yeah, I was just thinking about that because I've not heard anything about The Mandalorian. Like, I'm hearing stuff about Bridgerton. I'm seeing things about Bridgerton, Lovecraft Country, obviously with The Handmaid's Tale. But I remember, yeah, like Danielle said, you know, when 
the Mandalorian dropped, everybody was talking about it and how great the, the second season was. But I'm just not hearing anything. I don't even think there's been an FYC event. There is this this final. There could be one yeah. coming up. It was like literally, yeah. I think the last night before voting began, or right. one of the last nights. So yeah, it was kind of last minute. But that was, you know, D- Disney Plus. It's been a little confusing to to figure out who's campaigning and and where that's coming from. So, so it'll be interesting to see if that, you know, that show that was supposed to, you know, be second in a lot of, you know, people's ballots, where that's going to land. If Bridgerton does indeed go higher than, yeah, and and, and in that genre space, I, I do got to give Amazon credit. I mean, they've been hammering the boys so hard that yes. they, yeah. they they pushed that show into the conversation and and did, did a pretty good job. I got to say, with the you know the events and just the noise surrounding the boys and and so as a result it's it's you know definitely much more in the conversation than it perhaps had been uh before all the campaigning so so that'll be interesting to see kate do you have a a drama favorite or what do you uh sort of it's just so strange how few dramas there are this year compared to limited series um i mean it seems to me that the crown is really it's the crowns to lose, but it's just so weird. Like when has this happened before um, that there are just so, so few dramas and it's usually the toughest category. And this year there's so little. And, you know, I think it'll be kind of fun to see sort of like the Oscars, like the, the fun things that ended up being nominated for best picture because certain movies hadn't come out, you know, um, and therefore it was like a more wide open field and there was some creativity that wouldn't have been if it had been a normal year. But, you know, I agree with jazz. I feel like the Mandalorian is, I'm not hearing people talking about it. Um, I think the crown is kind of a given, you know, yeah. And I think in terms of nominations, uh, you know, you definitely have, you know, people still talk about Lovecraft Country, even though that's sort of a little long in the tooth at this point. Uh, timing is everything, which means Handmaid's Tale. Everyone's talking about Handmaid's Tale right now. That's going to help okay. it, uh, you know. Uh, and and Pose, same thing. Everyone was sort of talking mm-hmm. about the Pose finale. I think that may help it as well. So, you know, that's a case of, you know, two shows with big, big moments coming along right before voting begins. And and got to believe that that's going to make an impression on voters, but we'll see. You guys have anything uh, that, you know, long shots that you're sort of pushing for? I think, Danielle, I, I think I know your answer. Well, you just said long shot. So wait, what do you, what do you think is my answer when you say long shot? I was thinking that you might go with P Valley. No? Oh, interesting. I mean, I do like P Valley a lot. So, I mean, that's it didn't cross I'll, I'll be honest, it didn't cross my mind because it it feels like the longest of shots, which is unfortunate, but it just feels like they didn't put as much muscle behind it as I had hoped they would have in order to give it that chance. Um because that's a great example of something that came a long time ago. And so you really need to 
hey guys, we're still here. Please don't forget us. We're a good show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know what? That's a, that's a good pick. Um, you know, it's hard. It feels like and she she just won the Pulitzer Prize. Sorry, yeah. 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 So. I mean, maybe maybe that'll be a little push, you know, inadvertently because she's in the headlines and stuff. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, the show in general didn't feel. I didn't really see anything about it during FYC, to be honest. And maybe, I, again, maybe I missed it. Maybe it's out there and it just wasn't, you know, in my radar. Um, t- I mean, other than- there still are a lot of shows. So, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I know <laughs> events and, and things, but, you know, there, there's still limited number of slots. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard when you said long shot, my mind went a little blank because I was like, all the ones I want to see, I think likely will get, most of them will get nominated given, again, the eight spots and the weird year. Things that we already talked about: boys, Pose, Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, Jazz, do you have any sort of long shots that uh, you know probably won't get it, but you you would love to see some <laughs> some attention? I would love to see P Valley get in. It is such a good show, and Katori Hall's done such a great job with it. Um, but also, Harry Mason. I love mm. the original series, yeah. and I do like this one so. Yeah. That's my. And that's almost like uh, in treatment as well. Just one that, you know, got good attention, really well done, looks amazing, but just kind of bubbling under. Um, and Kate, any other uh, sort of long shots that you're sort of rooting for? Not really. I mean, my long shot would be I would want the flight attendant to move from the comedy category to the drama <laughs> category, I mean, this, which is where I believe right? it should be. Yeah. yeah. Especially now that Hacks has come along and, you know, anything that the flight attendant may have won it might be going to Hacks. So but we'll get there. I'm not. I, yeah, I don't disagree with you. And, and that would have been, you know, if, if it had been sort of like figured out earlier on, probably advantageous for HBO max to, to do that. But yeah, the problem is they do. I mean, between HBO max and HBO have so many contenders that it's, it's tough for them to sort of figure out where these should go. So I have two sort of long shots. One I wrote about, um, we are who we are, um, which I wrote a column about and sort of, I just, I really liked just the, the story, the, the young uh, actors at the center of it. Uh, it really sort of spoke to me. The other one is sort of a fun one that I really got into. And a lot of critics did a lot of critics feel the same way I do, which is for all mankind was kind of fun, especially in mm. season two, they did a really good job. And I still think about that show because of how amazing they recreated what the world would have looked like in alternative history. If the Russians were the first on the moon, and now they're up to the end of season two and to the 80s. And so many little things have changed, like the passing of the Equal Rights Amendment. And then big things have changed, too, like the technology has gotten much further. They're already driving electric cars and they have a huge moon base and the things that might have happened in alternative history. And it really just plays with your imagination. I just love that. And some great storytelling as well. Um, but that's one of those genre shows that the Emmys just don't pay attention to. So that's too bad. But I, I really did love season two of For All Mankind and I can't wait for season three. So I agree. I agree. This season of For All Mankind was so good, especially the duct tape episode, which I actually wrote about. Mm, yes. And yeah. it is an underrated show and it deserves more love. And if you haven't seen it to anybody listening, like you've got two seasons on Apple TV Plus. You got me. I'll, I'll watch yeah. it. 
So there and you go. So oh. duct tape. It was so, so easy. So, so easy. It was the word duct tape. Just on, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. We we I, we accomplished something today. We got uh, we we got a TV pick for for Kate Arthur, and I think that's where we leave it because we got to move on to the show. So, thank you, Kate, for joining us. And bye, everyone. Thanks Daniel, for having me. Absolutely, and Daniel and Jazz. I'll see you next week. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Marvel Studios' The Falcon and the Winter Soldier stars Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, a.k.a. The Falcon, and Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes, a.k.a. The Winter Soldier. The pair, who came together in the final moments of Avengers Endgame, team up on a global adventure that tests their abilities and their patience. The six-episode series also stars Daniel Brühl as Zemo, Emily Van Camp as Sharon Carter, and Wyatt Russell as John Walker. When Sam Wilson was handed the Captain America shield by original Captain America Steve Rogers in the last Avengers film, it was unclear if he would actually don the superhero's star-spangled uniform moving forward. And as we saw in Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it was something that Sam, played by Anthony Mackie, wasn't sure he wanted. But spoiler alert, by the end of the series, the Falcon is ready. I ain't gonna lie. You're special. Thank you. I mean, you ain't no Malcolm Martin Mandela, but... No argument there, but I know what I've got to do. So, a black Captain America, huh? Damn right. Friday's Adam B. Very caught up with Mackie to discuss his character's journey in becoming Captain America, working with Sebastian Stan on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and the entire Marvel Universe. They began by discussing what it was like for Mackie to put on the Captain America costume for the first time. It was very emotional. Um, I was, I, I literally experienced a thousand emotions in, um, in one minute. Um, it, was, it was one thing seeing the costume, you know, it, it was almost like it wasn't really happening like i oh they said you're going to be captain they obviously are not bringing you in to fit you in a captain america costume and um then they open the curtain and there's the the fucking costume and um it's crazy because you know i've i've worked so long in this business and i've done so many uh things that i felt were not uh appreciated or overlooked or things that were um, not considered to be worthy of uh, a promotion. Mm -hmm. And um, this is like my first promotion. Mm -hmm. It's the first time someone has looked at my work and say, because of your work, you deserve this. And I've seen so many people who didn't have the resume, who didn't have the background, who didn't do the work, and they got promoted. You know, so it was very emotional um, and very uh, exciting as, as, you know, as, as exciting as it can be. You know, um, the idea of being Captain America uh, was something that I never fathomed or because it was so, so, so far fetched. I never even dreamed about the idea of something like that. You know, I wanted to be in a super book, I mean, a comic book movie so I could be the guy in Spider-Man that goes, it's Spider-Man. You know, that was as far as my 
ambition could take me in uh, that universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's different now. You know, I've, I've, it gives me a new perspective on the business. Does that, does that sort of perspective that you had, is that what helped inform how you wanted to play Sam's ambivalence about becoming Captain America? It seems like the show really kind of explores how hard it is for Sam to even see himself in that role. 100% correct. Um, it's, it's really hard. You know, a lot of times my dad always used to say greatness is as far as you can see it. And, you know, for me, uh, playing Sam at that moment in his life, you you know, the, the fear of representing a country who doesn't represent you, Mm. you know, was something that's not only, uh, you know, hard, hard to understand, unfathomable, but hard to overcome. You know, and, you know, with a lot of uh, people, uh, black people, you know, our our imagination can only go so far because for us, the sky is the limit. And for everyone else, the limit is the sky. Mm. You know, so there are limitations that we place on ourselves because of our surroundings. And, um, you know, I did that to myself. And that's definitely what Sam Wilson goes through in the uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. There's a there's a character in this in the show who it was a super soldier, a black super soldier who who is uh, played by Carl Lumbly. Um, am I pronouncing his name correctly? The great Carl Lumbly. The great Carl Lumbly. <laughs> Apologize. Um, who says very directly to Sam, it's not only that he doesn't believe that a black man will ever become Captain America. It's that no self-respecting black man would ever accept that title. Right. How do you feel about that? Um, well, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, Malcolm Spellman, our direct, our uh, writer did an amazing job of capturing the thought process of the black experience in America. Mm-hmm. How do you represent, fight for, and honor a symbol that has never fought for, represented, or cared for you? You know, America has never acknowledged or apologized for slavery. So how, as a black man, the descendant of slaves, do you stand up and say, I will now represent you? And black people have been going through that for generations. That was part of uh, the reason you know, a lot of black people didn't want to go to war. That's Muhammad Ali. You know, one of his big arguments was as a black man, why would I go and fight against Asian people when America right here is crucifying me? I don't have enemies over there. I have enemies here. So taking that argument, how do you stand up, you know, and fight for a country, you know, or in the hood, we would say, look out for a country that never looked out for you. Um, and, but then, but, but at the same time, you had that emotional reaction to actually then getting the promotion and being given the mantle. Because for me, it's different. I mean, I've had uncles who've come back from war and received nothing. Um, my grandfather was a a sharecropper, you know, he was the first it's, it's, it's lineage. You know, for me, it was so emotional, um, because looking at where my grandfather came from to where my dad, uh, uh, you know, dropping out of school in eighth grade to literally pick cotton and my mom graduating from a Negro appointed high school. Mm -hmm. For me to be able to come from those two people and 
have the opportunities that I've had, like going to uh, NOCA, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts here, going to Juilliard, going to North Carolina School of the Arts, studying my craft, st- being on Broadway, and now the pinnacle of all pinnacles, you know, having one of my, if not one of my bucket lists, the bucket list, you know, um, uh, moment happen. It's not so much about becoming Captain America, but it's about having my dreams realized. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it was it's 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 very humbling when, you know, you get the opportunity that you've always dreamed of. <laughs> you know, because yeah. for me, I never it wasn't like, oh, I want to stand on a stage with an Oscar. That was never one of my dreams. You know, I would I, I, I've never asked for or looked at, at uh, recognition uh, as something that I've needed because I've always been on the outside of the recognition path. Mm-hmm. So it was never something that I desired, but this is something different, you know, cause I, it, it's a, it's a, the only way to describe it is it's a promotion. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of tweets over the course of the run of the Falcon and the winter soldier that were along the lines of Steve Rogers represented what America thought it was. John Walker, the character played by Wyatt Russell, represents what America really is. And Sam Wilson represents what America should be. Wow. Um, I I, I take it you hadn't seen that. No, but that's that's amazing. Because the reality of it is they're all three very different captains. Um, And I think the, the most interesting thing... You know, when you look at what, what Wyatt Russell did so amazingly well in this show and what should be recognized, when he got to that scene where the Dora Milaje kicked his ass mm-hmm. and he's sitting there and he said, they weren't even super soldiers. That moment was so profound in the arc of that character. And he played it. I mean, he, he created <laughs> a, 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 it was one of the most amazing acting jobs I've had the opportunity to stand across and watch. Mm-hmm. Because he had all the little twitches, he had all the the things to make that character grow for those six episodes. And when he got to that moment, you knew everything was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know the thing that makes Sam Wilson different is he's not a superhero. He doesn't have a superpower. He doesn't have a super suit. He's a guy who went out for a jog and he became an Avenger. <laughs> <laughs> So because of that, you have someone, you know, he was a counselor of soldiers. He was, you know, he's a he's a he's a vet. He's a he's a family man. He's he's everything that every regular guy wishes they could be. Mm -hmm. And he just happens to become Captain America. So his superpower is his empathy, his sympathy, his emotional connection to the world around him. So he's dealing with Carly. He doesn't want to kill her. He wants to help her get past the psychological trauma that she's experienced to get her to that point Yeah. instead of, you know, beating her up and all that shit, which is the way that America has always solved this problems. You know, we're bigger than you. We have more power than you. We're going to show up and we're going to kick your ass. But now in this day and age in 2021, we're at a position where we need to acknowledge other people's differences. We need to understand other people's differences and we need to help people get past ourselves included those differences uh and now it does appear as if you will also be headlining a new captain america movie 
Is there anything you can tell me about that? I, you know, the funny thing is, I haven't heard anything from Marvel. I, I didn't get a call, an email, nothing. I was in the grocery store, and when I go to the grocery store, I go to the same dude named Dwayne, and he'll. I text him. <laughs> and I'm like, "Yo, are you at work today?" He's like, "Yep, I'll six. So, <laughs> so he's my dude, right? He'll put the clothes sign on. After when I'm telling him, you know, I'm coming up to the register, he'll put the close sign on. So he'll close his lane so everybody can come through. So I come in, he gets me in and out. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing in line and he's ringing up the grocery. He's like, so how you been? Like, I'm good. He's like, yo, the show's good. Like, you're good. I'm like, thanks, man. He's like, yo, so is this real? And I, I didn't know anything. And he had knew he knew the whole breakdown of everything. Before so he, I did. So he showed you. So he showed you the news story on on his phone. And yeah, said, that I was that they were developing Cap Four. And, and, I'm and like, you had not. Heard I, I hadn't heard anything. I'm like, dude, you got breaking news in the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, Chris Evans. Had, was always very open about the fact that he had he saw his t- tenure in the MCU as finite, um, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way about Chris Evans' tenure. No, 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 about your tenure, and uh, like because he was he would like he said this to me like I was on the set of Avengers: Age of Ultron, and he was very clear like I have X number of movies on my contract, and when that's done, I'm. I'm going to be done with this role and I'm going to move on. Uh, and he was, and he was, he would say that multiple times. And then after Endgame, you know, that was the end of the Steve uh, Rogers story. At least he might actually end up coming back. We don't know. But, <laughs> but, um, but I was, but I did want to know <laughs> if you saw your tenure in the MCU as finite, or if you are sort of open to, playing Sam as long as, as, as they'll have you. I will play Sam as long as I can eat clean, work out and take as much Advil as my body can handle. (laughs) I, um, you know, I love doing these movies. I love, uh, the character, you know, we work with, you know, all jokes aside, when you look at just a Marvel crew of people, you know, the, from, the PAs all the way to the directors. Every time I've been on a set of a Marvel movie, I've had an amazing time. And it, it's just a great group of people every year to go work with and enjoy. You know, it, it's, it's not normal that when you show up to work, you know, you're looking forward to seeing people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're hanging out on the weekends and playing golf with people that you work with. You know, that's not normal, but you know, these people I've known for eight, nine years, you know, so it's, it's kind of, it's more of a, a, a family thing than anything else. It's like going to summer camp. <laughs> um, one of those people is Sebastian Stan and um, there's, you know, the, the show begins with them really not really liking each other. And that, and that is sort of a band, like a, a barbed banter that they've had that they, that started with uh, civil war. Uh, really. Um, but then over the course of the season, they, they develop a real intimacy with each other, not just a friendship, but a real sort of closeness. Um, could you talk about how you and Sebastian developed that relationship on the show? 
You know, it's funny. It's it's not something that I'll give it 100 percent to the Russo brothers. Um, Sebastian and I, you know, his his personality is so dry and he's such a hermit and I'm such an extrovert and, you know, just out there. So watching the two of us against each other, the Russo brothers just. You know, I mean, they they understand comic gold. They understand, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at their resume, they know how to put people together and make it work, you know. Mm-hmm. So they got the fact that the two of us outside on opposite sides of Chris Evans is, is like the odd couple. <laughs> so the more like the little bit we would do, it started. The first scene we shot together was us in that damn VW bug. And Sebastian's like, push your seat up. I say, no. And from that, they're like, this is it, you know, mm-hmm. and they focused on that and built that and literally just pushed that as a um, as a, as a character, you know, um, uh, storyline. Uh, even now that they're gone, you know, it's caught on so well that it's still part of that Marvel uh, storyline. And and by the end of the show, they've, they, you know, that antagonistic relationship has has transformed into a real friendship. They really like each other by the mm-hmm. end. And especially Bucky goes from being just sort of like hollowed out at the beginning of the season to like finding his his shimmer, essentially. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, it's a good word for it. He found a shimmer. <laughs> his shimmer. That's that Barb and Star reference. Um, but um he uh he you know with Sam and his family. So I just, you know, given how as you described you and Sebastian are also quite different people, just right. how did you guys work out that kind of closeness that those characters got on the show itself? You know, it's it's interesting because Sebastian, I've worked with a lot of actors, um, but Sebastian's one of the only actors I've ever worked with who there was no, there, there was no forced interest. There was no uh, idea of who's the star or who's the co-star, or who's doing what for what. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he really works in a way to where what's going to make the scene best. And that's, that could be fewer lines for him. That could mean more lines for him. That could be fewer lines for me. That could be more. So, you know, he really has the, the, the pedigree, the background, the vocabulary of an actor's actor. And because of that, we've become friends. You know, we, we couldn't be more opposite. And because of that, I, that makes me find him interesting and that makes him find me interesting. And it's kind of translated into the characters, into the story, into the world. You know, there are certain scenes where, you know, he wasn't in the scene. And I'm like, yo, we need to throw Sebastian in the scene so he can do this and he can do that. You know, and or I would read a scene and say, well, I think Sebastian should do this and do that because it would take the character here. So, you know, he's um, he's it, it's literally if you look at Gene Wilder and um, Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. that, that's uh, is the odd couple. um did you pay much attention to how fans reacted to sam and bucky's sort of evolving friendship i didn't i try to stay away from fan stuff um Mm -hmm. you know the the fandom is a very dangerous place uh so i just i let it be what it is and Mm -hmm. and move on that's i think that's probably very healthy i was asking because uh, you know, my job is to pay attention to fandoms. So <laughs> I, I, 
I noticed that, you know, and this is I think that I think that has been happening with Bucky just as in general as a character. There are fans who are just sort of outright wanting Sam and Bucky to become a couple that they just <laughs> they loved them together. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I can see you that made you smile. Um, <laughs> um, I guess I'm interested in the, you know, how it's so rare to see male friendship and mm-hmm. male sort of platonic love in this in a in a superhero context and bucky's now had it twice he had it with steve and now mm-hmm. he's getting it with sam um the yeah. for you as an actor like being able to explore that element of a relationship with another male character i'm just curious how how that evolves for you and what that's like for you to play um, well, interesting. Uh, great question. Because for me in this day and age, so many things are twisted and convoluted. There's so many things that people latch onto with their own devices to make themselves relevant and rational. Um, but it's not the, the first time I've experimented or played with that. I did an episode of Black Mirror where it was the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of, uh, two guys being friends and loving each other in 2021 is a problem because of the exploitation of homosexuality. So, you know, it used to be guys could be friends. We could hang out, we can do this. And it was cool. You know, you would always meet your friends at the bar, Mm -hmm. you know, but you can't, you can't do that anymore because something as pure and beautiful as homosexuality is being exploited by people who are trying to rationalize themselves. Mm-hmm. So something that's always been very important to me is showing a sensitive masculine figure. And I think with, you know, there's nothing more masculine than being a superhero and flying around and beating people up. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing more sensitive than having a emotional conversations and a, and, a, and a kindred spirit friendship with someone that you care about and love. Uh, and I think, you know, Sam and Steve, Sam and Steve had a relationship where they admired, appreciated and loved each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bucky and Sam have a relationship where they learn and figure out how to accept, appreciate and love each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can call it a bromance or whatever they call it, but it's, it's literally just two guys who have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have that now. You can't find that now. You know, there's no bro code between bros in 2021, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's, that's the thing. I think for a younger generation, they'll understand if I say that Sam and Bucky have a bro code that cannot be broken or altered or in any way, shape or form uh, changed. I did want to go back to the costume um, <laughs> because, uh, I did have a question that I would, I wondered the moment I saw it and several other people have wondered as well that I've noticed online. Why didn't Sam have a helmet? Uh, because I fly. Mm-hmm. So if I had a helmet, it would be a helmet with goggles and a breathing nozzle and all this stuff. That's why I have, it's called a cow. I don't know why it's called a cow, but people love to put me in cows. I had one in altered carbon. I, it's, I don't know what it is about my head to shoulder ratio with my neck, but they love to put me in <laughs> a big cow. So it was literally a, a, a conversation. I mean, for months, if we were going to keep this headpiece, because it was such a, it, it was, 
it, it was it, it it just wouldn't work. And we went through different incarnations, different fixes, different clips, different everything. And finally, uh, we put it on, and uh, everybody was like, "That's pretty dope." Mm-hmm. You know, and what I didn't want was a helmet. Like I didn't want an Iron Man, you know, shing, you know, just yeah. chunk, 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 you know. I still wanted to, I wanted it to have to be me when a cow was on. Uh, so, you know, the, the, that's my, my, my helmet is the upside down helmet that start from my shoulders and go up. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's my head to shoulder ratio. I don't know what it is, dude. You go back and watch Alter Carbon. I literally have a jacket wrapped around my throat. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's Anthony Mackey, star of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Catch up on the series via Disney+. After the break, WandaVision head writer Jack Schaefer and star Paul Bettany on one of this year's most unique TV shows. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. WandaVision, the first Marvel Studios series created exclusively for Disney+, stars Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff, Paul Bettany as Vision, Katherine Hahn as Agnes, and Tiona Paris as Monica Rambeau, who was introduced to audiences first in Captain Marvel. Kat Dennings reprises her role as Darcy from Thor and Thor the Dark World, and Randall Park is back as Jimmy Woo from Ant-Man and the Wasp. I recently spoke with head writer Jack Schaefer and Bettany about the show, including the intricacies of getting those old-time sitcoms right down to the studio audience, as well as how it focused on grief and the impact of one particular line about grief in the show and how that's resonated. We also discuss whether we'll ever see more WandaVision, and yes, we also discuss (laughs) Bettany's padded butt. We began by talking about how this became such a special project. I got a call from the boss saying, come in and see me. Um, and, you know, Kevin Feige calling you when your contract's up to come up and see him in his office. I thought, ah, I'm getting in the can. And and then I, I didn't want anybody to feel kind of uncomfortable. So I walked in and immediately started talking and uh, yeah, and said, look, I, it's been an amazing ride and, and I, I've loved every minute of it and, and there are no hard feelings. And, he, and, and, and Kevin and Lois were, were like, are you quitting? And I went... No, 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 no. Are you firing me? Aren't you? Isn't that what the, and they and went, no, 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 we're going to pitch you a TV show. So they then pitched this TV show, a sort of broad kind of idea. I was like, I'm in, that's amazing. And then to see what Jack did with it, because I, the one thing I questioned in my head as I began to think about it is this, how does this not just be a gimmick? And, um, uh, Jack made this extraordinary thing, and I've, I've spoken to some re- really—I um, mean, uh, uh, really great people in this business who are like, "It's amazing! It's blown TV wide open. It, 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 it you know, TV makes a contract with the audience of what the show is, and then and and it never renegs on that deal. And this has." And I went, "Yeah, that's right." And then I thought about it and thought, "No, that's not right." It, 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 it absolutely kept its promise to the audience. And it was just so, it was this exquisite puzzle box that Jack uh, and her brilliant room of writers 
created. And the experience of this for me has just been one of joyous collaboration. The fact that none of the writers or, or Kevin have any fear of the actors being involved early on. And, and, and all we did was discuss and no fear or ego. If, if I flagged something that I, I didn't think was, was quite working and there was never any, any, um, there was never any friction. It was just a joyous experience. Well, and I find you, you mentioned when, when, you know, Kevin first sort of pitched it to you, this is such a unique, special show that it's kind of impossible to describe, right? I mean, Jack, can you even describe what WandaVision is? Even now, now that you can, it's so sort of hard, right? To sort of like, sort of give a real explanation of, of everything that you did with the show. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit hard to talk about. It's easier now that, you know, people have seen it. I mean, when we so we had the whole show on on a wall and the first time I met Paul, he came in um, for me to to pitch him the whole show. And I was I was so nervous. I mean, I pitched it a million times because because that's how it works at Marvel. Like you pitch. I, I basically pitched it to Kevin like a million and one times. And um, and I believe the only other person I had pitched it to was Lizzie. I think she had come in and then Paul came in. Um, and I like I have been such a lifelong fan. I mean, like obviously Night's Tale, but like for me and my household, Master and Commander is an enormous deal for me personally. Wimbledon is a huge deal. And and I and obviously beautiful mind um and so many others gangster number one and so like but for me paul is is um comedy like i know like obviously the dramatic chops but i was just like let someone let me write comedy for this man and like and like let like i can i'm gonna be able to hear his voice in my head can he do peter o'toole yes he can do peter o'toole that's what we're doing so but when he came in i was like oh gosh i hope that the man himself is 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 gonna be into this so i had to pitch it's like this is huge wall, like broken out by episodes, like all the different like colored cards, like with each like plot thread and then like all the art for various sitcoms and the art for various comic books. Like it, it looks like a mess, it looks chaotic, which is what the show is. Um, and Paul, as gracious and lovely as he is, he sat there while I, I mean, what, it was like a 45 minute pitch and I did the whole thing. Um, and, and mercifully, thankfully you, you were in and you loved it. And then it was like, it was just like collaboration and communication, as Paul said, like from, from henceforth is like both he and Lizzie were about the, you know, the integrity of the character and just plussing everything. Everything can be better, more lived in. Um, and like just turning these dials, like all the dialogue just got better and better and better, um, with their input. And, and especially like, you know, Paul, like you love to chat about it. I love to chat about it. All I want to do is talk about, <laughs> is talk about movies and TV. And, um, and that's what we did for a really long time. And it was the best. It was the best. I love the fact that, you know, I mean, it's so nice. When you're in that situation, you don't have to fear that you're going to be on the set with the lights burning and say, I told you, I'm told, I've been saying it since day one. I think this is a problem uh, because you're constantly discussing it. And, and one, one moment was, was um, the scene in the Avengers compound from civil war where, um, where, I, I, uh, where I felt he's c consoling, um, uh, L Lizzie's character and, and 
I, I felt that we weren't quite there and that I didn't want, I wanted it to be a, like this ingenue robot. Um, so it didn't feel in any way preachy that it was this ingenue robot sort of trying to figure out there's got to be a reason for grief. And, and we, we just talked about this. What is the end of this speech? And I don't think we've quite got it right. And, and there was no, um, there was, there was no resistance and there was only, well, let's, let's keep working and let's keep working. And it was a, it was, um, such a, it's such a, it, that little moment of that one line represents the, the entire experience of the show, which is so many people were involved in making that, that one line that, um, and, and the moment, the moment it happened, and I, I, I believe it was Jack Schaefer's assistant came in and said, persevering. And <laughs> we were all halfway there. And then she came in and she went persevering and, and, and everybody knew. And Jack rang me up and she went persevering. And I was like, that's it. And we were just, we, 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 we. We need. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask Jack about that because I, I, I looked it up real quick because I wanted to make sure I got the line right. But what is grief, if not love, persevering? But that line, I, I, I can't remember the last time a line in a TV show has had that much of sort of a resonance and, and an impact just on people. After that, that episode came out and everyone was just like, my God, that's that's the line. I mean, Jack, talk, talk about that eureka moment. and what that line sort of meant in describing this entire series and, and, and how people have really just sort of melted over that line. Yeah. I, well, so the, the episode is, is Laura Donnie's episode. Um, she did extraordinary work. She is a truly gifted writer. Um, and, and every, that line is a testament to all of the work that she did across the whole series. And, and, and that episode, we, we knew early on that we wanted this scene that, that we wanted to see, um, Wanda and Vision in the Avengers compound fall in love because we don't we were deprived of that in the MCU we we missed that beat like they they go from you know kind of like making paprikash to to then like shacking up in Scotland and 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 we missed a step and so in the room we just were like how do we how do we show the like the early early flame of their love um and so Laura wrote this gorgeous scene of them very quiet very beautiful um scene um and and it was long and, and, and like, at, you know, as you do in production, like you start to like, things need to sort of coalesce and you need to sort of um, massage. And Lizzie had notes about, you know, what she was saying and trying to, to bring that home, like her sort of metaphor of the ocean. We, we came to that together and that felt very right. And then Paul had said, um, that, that, you know, you alluded to vision in Ultron, you know, um, a thing is not beautiful because it lasts. And you talked, you spoke about Paul, about how vision has the ability to distill ideas of humanity so gracefully, so perfectly. And, and that because he is not human, that he has that ability. And so Paul had said something along the lines of like, vision should be able to illuminate something about grief for Wanda, that he should be able to lay it bare in a way that it can be of comfort to her. And so what we kept circling is that is the beauty of grief, like that grief is a, it is a, it is a, an imprint of love. Um, and that, and that she, you know, she's afraid she's going to drown and he's confident she won't. And why aren't you? Because of the beauty of grief, of the love inside of the grief. Um, so yeah, so we circled it. I had something that was like, like, you know, what is grief if not love surviving? I think that's where I sort of had landed. 
Oxford. Yeah, and and Mary, our producer Mary Lovanos and I, with my assistant who was who was part of the conversation, we were just like, that's not. It, there's something in the word surviving that feels kind of desperate and 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 doesn't have the sort of like beauty and poetry. And yeah, Laura Monty, my incredible assistant, was like, she just suggested the word persevering. And so, as Paul said, you know, Laura Donnie wrote the episode. I was doing the revisions in concert with Mary and in direct conversation with Paul. My assistant came in. You know, Matt Shackman's gorgeous directing. Um, it just, it really, it is indicative of the larger experience on this show um, that that everybody was firing on all cylinders, emotionally speaking. And also, Jack, you, 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 um, you, you identified something I think that is really important, that the line actually plays on Lizzie and her rece- receiving that line. And, um, and, uh, and that's clever. That was that's a clever Matt Chapman decision to 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 be on the person receiving that moment is was really really smart. Yeah, no, beautiful. Well, I, I want to like ADR it better later. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the sitcoms uh, because Paul, I mean, talk about a gift to be able to have now now say that you performed in a 50s sitcom a 60s sitcom a 70s sitcom an 80s like you've you've you know how the experience of having starred in sitcoms from many different decades uh what what did that mean to you what was your relationship with sitcoms did you did you go back and watch many of these old did you go check out an old dick uh, dick van dyke or or bewitched or what what did those kind of shows mean to you especially growing up a hundred percent. First, um, first, I'll, I'll preface this with a little story because Jack mentioned a Knight's Tale. When I was doing the speeches in a Knight's Tale, um, uh, it, we were shooting it in Czechoslovakia, so in well, the Czech Republic. Uh, and I, um, I remember I went out and they put the camera on me, and I had this whole plan in my head, and I started doing it, and nobody laughed because. They didn't speak English, so they got these laugh cards that said "laugh" in uh, in, in 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 Czech, and they and and so so I I would do my speech, and then they you know ads would hold up these cards you know behind the camera, and the whole audience would laugh, and I realized how shallow I am because I felt like I was really killing them, and <laughs> and and um. I so 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 there is that. I was very frightened of doing um, the the first episode in front of a live studio audience, and the moment they started laughing, I just I, I I just loved it because again, I'm wildly shallow, and and um, there's a hole at the bottom of my bucket that endlessly needs to be filled. But anyway, um, but uh, and and I I did go back and watch it, and I kind of had in my head that, well, I know the Dick Van Dyke show because I grew up watching reruns of Dick Van Dyke show, Bewitched, um, and, you know, all, all of, I Love Lucy on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings after church before sports. And I, um, I, so I sort of thought I loved it. And then I went back and started watching them. And I, I remember going to Lizzie and I went, we're in fucking trouble. The skill. <laughs> involved uh, the, the the amount of skill that these two actors have the easiness with which they generate the warmth between them in in their relationship and you know that there, there are these amazing pratfalls and and 
And there's one episode where uh, Dick Van Dyke has to do this. Um, he does this skit where he's he's a, a, he's a guy who's drunk and coming home to his wife, and every time he sees his wife, he's entirely sober. And then the moment she turns it back, he kind of slides down the chair and everything. And, and, and the skill with which, he's like a ballet dancer, the skill with which it's done, I found it incredibly um, daunting the moment I started actually looking at how brilliant these entertainers were. I mean, we're actors. It's a, di it's a different thing. You know, the, 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 the level of skill is, 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 is just extraordinary. And I loved every moment of, um, of, of delving into all of that. Yeah. That, that looked like a lot of fun. And, and, and Jack, you know, for, for the, the writers to do these shows within a show, but, but sort of to have to write a script that was a, a 50 sitcom script and then come back and write one that was a little more 60s and then write one that's more family ties-esque and then the, the Malcolm in the Middle sort of one. What was that, what kind of whiplash was that like for, for the writers in, in sort of like going from these different styles of, of comedy while also writing the overall WandaVision? Sure. Yeah. Well, so writing the pilots, so I wrote the pilot and that was terrifying much as, as similarly to, to what Paul was saying about, you know, seeing um, Dick Van Dyke um, and Mary Tyler Moore, you know, be their unbelievably charismatic and deft performing selves. It was the same with the writing to, to, to attempt, you know, cause we were in, when we were early in the writing, writing process and when we were pitching it, when I was pitching it to everybody, um, it, you know, what I would always say is it's not parody. We're going to write and create excellent examples of each of these eras of sitcom, right? No problem. It's going to be fine. Then when we actually sat down to write it, oh my gosh, it was so daunting and horrifying. And I actually, two days into my writing of the pilot, I called three of the writers back in the room because I was completely lost um, and, and needed their help. And actually, it's really kind of cute because it was a little bit like the writer's room on Dick Van Dyke with my um, with my team of three in, in their room making magic. Um, well, so, you know, each of the episodes were assigned to different writers and, and I tasked them with the responsibility of becoming experts in their specific era. Um, so we all did a lot of research together. You know, we pulled a lot of scripts from the WGA. We had them in huge binders on the tables. We, when we wrote, um, we would adhere to the same um, format, script format style of the episode, which actually ended up ultimately helping us differentiate on the page when we were in sitcom mode and when we were in sort of weirdness mode or hex mode, um, because we would leave that format and go into typical uh, screenplay format um, and, and use sort of like italics and bold to, to denote this, these sort of big dramatic shifts, which also communicated to the actors when the, the acting style, you know, should go into more naturalistic and that kind of thing. Um, but but anyway, I credit my writers with with really understanding it on a deep level all the different eras. You know, we had big lists of you know catchphrases and and sort of the language of each era. It was really fun for the Dick Van Dyke episode for the pilot. We we had all the sayings of the era, and then we had to do that for like the British versions because I was writing for Paul. <laughs> so I, would, like, I had that and for like the for everybody else, and then for Paul, I like had this like hilarious, adorable little list. And then of course, Paul came in and was like, "Well, <laughs> maybe we switch this one, we swap this one round <laughs> for for a better, more believable version." I mean, it was it was really challenging and intimidating because of the talent that's come before us. Um, 
and, but at the same time, that's, that's what the show is, is, is truly a love letter, um, to, to these incredible shows and to the technicians behind all of them. Uh, also, Michael, think what an, a, a, a sort of daft and adroit move it is. You, you think about all of those, um, those TV, you start with the Dick Van Dyke and it's got all of that warmth and, and all of that optimism of, uh, of, 1950s America, and then by the 60s, bewitched, he's got this powerful wife, and he kind of doesn't want to have any power. And then by the 70s, you've got the Brady Bunch, and the Vietnam War is raging. And then you get into these sort of teachable moments, kind of the 80s stuff. And then by the time you get to modern family, it's very cool and cynical and you've lost all of that warmth and to for 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 jack and her writers to identify what a tool that is in 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 terms of the in terms of wonder's construction of 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 her you know what would a witch do if she lost everybody she loves and could bring them back and, and live in denial as, as the construction begins to fall apart. Uh, being able to go from the, that warmth to the coolness of those uh, shows, it's just, I think, the, I, I know Jack's on this call, but I would say if she wasn't, I think the writing is, is the construction of this is just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, the, all the pieces, when the, the 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 set redesigns, the fact that you know the the sets had to be redesigned for every era, and then those theme songs, of course, uh, were just stunning in there. Uh, so you know how perfectly replicated they were. It, it felt like of that era. Um, all these little pieces, like, and and you were all doing this like under you know the guise of the, the traditional Marvel secrecy. So. You know, having to pull all that off, keep it under wraps. I mean, that's that's kind of a Herculean challenge, Jack. <laughs> Would you say <laughs> the, the secrecy thing was tense? Yeah. The um, I mean, w- what we had going for us is like, especially early on, was like no one could have guessed what we were doing because it didn't make sense. Like, if you Kevin liked to bring people into the Wandavision writers' room because it looked so insane in there with the art that was <laughs> on the wall. Like he, I think, and when when we finally took it all down, I think everybody kind of mourned that a bit because it had been such a bananas room. Um, and it, but then once we were shooting from really from when Evan Peters came to set, I just was like, like white knuckling it until the show dropped because I wanted to preserve all of the surprises. Um, so yeah, that, and then like doing press early on and Paul knows this and has been, has been doing this for years and years doing Marvel press with when your mouth moves, but you're not saying anything at all. Cause you're not allowed to, <laughs> um, that's very tense. Um, but yeah, I mean the heart, I think the hardest part, but it was also the most enjoyable part was yeah. Figuring out the puzzle. It was, it, it sort of broke our brains a bit and we had, and that's why I, I needed a room. You know, I did not at all write the show on my own. I had an extraordinary team. Um, and then, and then it was given life by, um, these incredible performers who had already lived it. I mean, that's the gift when you work on a Marvel project um, is, is you you're getting people who've lived in these, these bodies and minds and hearts for so long. And, and Lizzie and Paul always occupied their own corner of the MCU, this like very delicate, um, authentic, earnest, 
just very truthful, um, little, little, little pocket, little corner of their own. And even when you go back before they were known as, as, you know, soulmates, they still, they still in their own little spheres were, were operating with such integrity. Paul, the other night I, I, I was watching, rewatching your birth scene in Ultron and it's What's so, to me. <laughs> <laughs> so glorious it's so like you you're doing like a newborn thing without it being literally a newborn thing like it's just so lovely i mean your moment with the cape do how who was that you did you come up with the cape moment whose idea was oh, that? I, think, I think that was just oh yeah. god it's so funny um and so but like you like you barely do anything with your eyes and it's like all there and i just you know i'm just so lucky that i that i got to work um with with Paul and with Lizzie on the show. It just has been the best. I don't even remember what the question is. It's so hard. I just want to just want to hang out with Paul all day long. By the way, there was another moment where Jack was like, I don't think we've got it's the the goodbye scene. And she was like, I don't think we're there. I, I you know I and what what could it be? And what can I I went, Jack, I mean, I'll have a look at it, but I think it's there. And I went away and I went, I think it's there. I just think that if there's a very, there's a famous vision thing where uh, he's crying. And I went, I think if we add in the tear and it becomes Pinocchio, I'm a real boy now, but let's not change any of the dialogue. I think the dialogue is like stellar. I think we're there. Just let's add in, he cries and realizes his journey is complete. You know, that, that I'm a real boy. And, and, uh, and, so there are the, it was just uh, it was just so lovely we both we we all everybody trusted each other and trusted that the if, didn't jack didn't you feel like there were less politics i know that there are always politics but don't you feel like there were less politics on set than there has ever been in in, in, in any project for me i i do i think this one was charmed i think that that the everyone was so unified and motivated um and i think especially like the the different departments you know the like this particular sandbox that they got to play in was so unique i mean like the practical effects and and um hair and makeup and wardrobe and you know mark worthington and the production design i just think i i do think that there was a very low level of friction because it was it was like it was like we were playing you know it, i think it brought everybody back to their childhood um in a very positive and uplifting way yeah and you could see that in the the, do the documentary that aired after i mean the moment when you know paul's talking about his padded butt for example <laughs> oh that's in there right <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I thought I wanted to keep that a secret. It's, it's, uh, ah, oh, no, that's terrible. You know, Mark Ruffalo is very, um, Mark Ruffalo is very jealous of my padded butt. He's like, <laughs> uh, I, what, what, you know, I got this saggy old man's ass and Paul Bentley gets to have a padded butt and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm furious about it. And I was like, Mark, you get to, you get to stand at the cross service table the whole day long. You know, I mean, he was, He's very jealous about my padded butt. <laughs> Paul, the other thing people appreciated was I know early on you were hinting that you finally got to work with someone you always wanted to work with, and it turned out to be you. Oh, my God. How much do you regret when things come out of your mouth sometimes? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, yes, because people kept texting me 
people's ideas. I, I may, I have a, I have a, a rule not to uh, Google myself on the internet or, or read reviews, but Jack, uh, was send me stuff and then I'd sneak a look and whatever, but people would, people would send stuff and I, and, and they started making suggestions of, of who this person would be. I thought it was a funny joke. And then pe people are like, well, what if it's so-and-so or so-and-so? I was like, oh my God, that's a really good idea. I wish it was that. <laughs> so disappointed when they realized it's not Patrick Stewart. Uh, um, and I was just making a stupid joke. Um, so yes, it was one of those moments where you think, oh, you know, I should have just. Oh, it's, it's fun. It was so fun. It was so fun. Everybody loved it. Jack, talking about those early interviews when the first uh, couple episodes are going, and I think the, the biggest thing you probably like had to bite your tongue on was was Catherine Hahn. And people are raving about Catherine Hahn, and you're thinking in your mind, oh, they have no idea. They have no idea where this is going. Well, I think actually I, that was one, I don't know. There's some secrets that you really want to keep. Like the Evan Peters thing, I was th that and, um, and, and vision fighting vision. Those were kind of the two things I really wanted to hold on to. And also I, I knew that the penultimate episode, like no one could, could anticipate that we were going to do this sort of like Christmas Carol, like rewind clip show, you know, memory palace thing. Um, and it's, and it's, I, I love the episode so much. So like I, I was, when, when things got sort of spoiled or there were theories, I would always be like, well, no one's going to guess that vision's going to fight vision and no one's going to guess the, you know, second to last episode. Um, but, um, the, now I can't remember what your question was, Michael, what were you asking me about? <laughs> the, the, the Catherine Hahn sort of. Oh, uh, Catherine Hahn. So, so when she was cast, you know, and, um, and then, and then when the show dropped and, and her name was Agnes, there was a lot of guessing that she was going to be Agatha Harkness. And it didn't bother me because something that I learned on this show, um, because it was my first television show. So like this sort of the, the, the planting and payoff is, is, a, is different in, in a, in a series than it is in a, in a feature. And, and there are things that you need to kind of warm your audience up for. Like there, you, you want like full 180 twists, you know, you want the moments where the, where the rug is legitimately pulled out from under the audience, but you also want, turns that feel satisfying. And so it, I found, I was happy that people were, um, speculating about Catherine Hahn, that she's such a, that she, Catherine Hahn is such a big deal. She wouldn't just be the nosy neighbor. Her name, you know, indicates she could be Agatha Harkness, but they, I knew they wouldn't be able to guess the complexity of the fact that yes, she's the villain and the antagonist of the show, but she also is this bizarro, mentor, mother figure, sister, like smorgasbord, um, because it's Catherine Hahn and she, she was, you know, interested in bringing all that to the table. So, um, so anyway, so people guessed on that and I was like, great, keep, keep, keep guessing. Cause yeah. it'll be slightly different than you expected. Right. 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 Um, well, I think the, 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 the other sad thing is realizing that this, this was, uh, you know, one and done. It's, it's a limited series. This was, was there ever a chance to talk of how do we do another season of WandaVision? How do we reinvent it? Or, or was the idea from the beginning, this is an entire experience start to finish and, and this is it. Oh, this is, this is the, this is the Marvel question that you can't answer. I know. We thought we were like, at this point, we're like, we don't have any more Marvel questions. <laughs> um, I, I will say that the, the goal with the series was always for it to feel very complete, that it was meant to, to have 
an ending that was, you know, deeply emotionally satisfying. Um, and it is, it's such a swing that, you know, it's, it's the idea of sort of like duplicating or returning to it is, is a complex, um, question, but I will, I will just say, I would love to hear what Paul has to say, but I will just echo what Mr. Feige has said in the press, which is you, you never know. (laughs) Is that your answer to Paul? Uh, well, you never know, but I, I think, uh, isn't it batting for limited series? Yes. yes. Right. <laughs> Good point, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that might be the answer. <laughs> Although uh, we, we've seen other shows, Downton Abbey included, where, yeah, we're a limited series. Oh, we're coming back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should be we followed that Downton Abbey in so many ways. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? Never say never. Uh, you, you, you never know. All, all I can tell you is that I would be, I uh, you know, look, anything, anything that Jack Schaefer uh, asked me to do, I'm going to do. So there it is. Catch up or rewatch WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.